I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after I've been away a couple of weeks out of town. And later in the podcast, we're going to interview Dr. Amy Butler, who is the interim senior minister at National City Christian Church in Washington, D.C., and also the executive director of Invested Faith. Autumn and I, before we interview Amy, are going to talk about what's going on in the Republican Party, talk about what's going on with the attack of public schools, and this lovely week that I've been spending in the Black Mountains of North Carolina with children, youth, and college ministers. It's been a glorious week. I can't wait to tell you about. So stay tuned. It's a great episode. Let's get back in the water. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, and I'm inviting you to join me in the water. Well, it's a virtual gathering, too. The Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Media will host its first webinar, Introducing the Raceless Gospel, on February 24th at 12 p.m. Central and 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll go down in the water of baptism, where we are invited to examine ourselves as members of Christ's body and to question why these color-coded labels stick to our skin. The webinar will be a safe space for you and for me, for all working to reconcile the North American church's history with race. It is also for those ready to embody a countercultural narrative that challenges the continued segregation of sacred space. I look forward to seeing you and to diving into this much-needed work. May our time together have rippling effects. The event is free. Please register at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are you doing? It's been a long time, girl. It has been. I feel like I'm trying to hold the fort down, and every time I look up, you're in a different time zone. What's going on? (laughs) I have been on the road. I've actually, I think, put my head down on my own pillow uh, back in the 405 only one time in the last two weeks. Uh, It's been a crazy uh, last couple of weeks, Uh, but man, it's been good, Autumn. Uh, Mm -hmm. I started uh, two weeks ago flying down to the U.S.-Texas border in the Valley of Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Landed in Harlingen, Texas. Uh, Johnny Pierce and I, a colleague of ours, went down there to get firsthand uh, stories from local pastors who live and minister along the border, as well as Mexican pastors who are ministering to migrants on the other side of the border. And it was an incredible, incredible time. just, I mean, they're just saints down there, to be quite honest with you. They're closer to God than we'll ever think about being. <laughs> right. Well, you just think about everything that all of us have been in, even our like normal homes where we know where we're going to lay our heads down at night. This, these past two years have been excruciating and just mm-hmm. so many unknowns. And then you go to a place geographically that is always sort of in the air and you add this like extra uncertainty on it. What What's going on down there? What's it like? I know you want to save some of it for our storytelling yeah. in the future. Yeah, uh, you know, just to let listeners know, uh, we are planning on dedicating our next issue of Nurturing Faith Journal completely to migrants and the immigration situation down at the border. Uh, We've also got some video content of stories from local pastors, as well as, Autumn, we interviewed a couple of migrants who made their way from Central America all the way to the border, and their stories are heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. Uh, and you're going to get to hear those uh, in a few months. And then we're going to play some of uh, the content here at Good Faith Weekly as well, so got a lot coming down the road, so stay tuned for that. But, you know, it's just, it's a remarkable scene. You hear so much in the uh, secular media and news outlets about the crisis at the border. And I do not downplay the crisis at the border, but probably a better way to categorize that would be more chaos at the border. Mm. And a lot of that has to do with the policy of the United States continually changing, not only in recent years, but throughout decades of how the United States uh, welcomes or rejects migrants from around the world. Um, And the meta narrative that has played out in our discoveries has been, especially in Central America, how 
U.S. foreign policy propped up many of these governments and instilled and supported uh, a lot of these leaders who have turned into dictators uh, trying to fight communism back in the day. Well, now because of corruption, uh, it, it's not a good it's not a good place to live. And then on top of that, the cocaine appetite of white collar America have brought over drugs through Mexico uh, at an alarming rate. Mm -hmm. And let's not mistake, let's not mince words here. The cocaine uh, industry that has given rise to the cartels in Central America and Mexico has not been, uh, it has not been supported by lower income people in the United States. They can't afford it, Mitch. Can't afford it. They cannot no. afford it. So what I'm saying is what we are facing right now in the United States that we call an immigration issue or an immigration problem is a creation of our own doing that's mm -hmm. been decades long. Yeah, we're the so firefighter we, who sets the fire and then comes right. to try to put it out. That's exactly right. We bear a huge responsibility in trying to figure out a, a better path forward when it comes to how we treat migrants uh, here in the United States, especially those who are coming from countries that we were directly involved in decades ago. But right now, there's no political incentive uh, for politicians to fix the problem mm -hmm. because they are making money on it, their supporters are making money on it, and they just simply don't care about what's happening to those people who are fearing for their lives at the border. So yes, it's a crisis, but it's also chaos. We've got to figure out a better way forward. And so we look forward in the upcoming months telling our listeners about what's going on and that you get to hear from these brave men and women who have traveled such a long distance just so that their family is not killed back in their home country and they can live safely uh, in a new environment, mm -hmm. only to be met by the stiff arm of uh, U.S. policies. And then also the brave men and women who are caring for these migrants mm. all along the border. They are remarkable individuals. So we really look forward to bringing all that information to you in the coming months. So it was it was, it was a life-changing trip. Uh, I, I feel like I say that a lot, Autumn, because we go into some of the most difficult uh, places, uh, but this certainly was. Uh, it was really eye-opening for me. I'm so glad that you guys, you and Johnny both were able to go down and um, you know, work with our our friends at Fellowship Southwest and our partner churches down there and really get to see for yourself and hear the stories because um, these folks who are um, victims of the violence in their countries, um, they have more to tell as well. So I'm excited to be yeah. a part of that. And the church needs to be leading mm -hmm. by example, yep, as well as vocalizing and advocating for a change in policy. Uh, because as Zach Dawes reported this week on Thursday in his reaction response uh, piece uh, that was released, it is hard to believe, but those who are most opposed to uh, asylum seekers and immigrants entering the country are white evangelicals. It's just mind-blowing. They have to totally reject the words uh, and teachings of Jesus to come to that conclusion, and it's it's just it's maddening it's frustrating it's angering but what we saw on the border were hispanic latino latinas constantly because of their faith reaching out to migrants caring for them and loving them and helping them find a safe place to live so while white evangelicalism is rejecting migrants there is a large populace who's not white evangelical, who are doing incredible things down at the border. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I think that's important to say. Well, speaking of crazy, uh, Autumn, another crazy article came out this last couple of weeks I wanted to talk about. And that is a continued attack on our public schools. Now, I know you're going to have a big sigh and I'm going to have a big sigh because we got to talk about our home state of Oklahoma. Anytime we're in the news, it's not good news. <laughs> Every time it's like, oh gosh, what do we do now? And you're hoping it's a, an onion article and it never is. <laughs> it, ne it never, 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 never is. Well, believe it or not, our state senator, Autumn. Don't say his name. 
I'm gonna have to hiss if you say it. <laughs> you and I chatted with him when they were treating our public school teachers so poorly, and he was awful. I know, I know. Um, let's just say the senator who shall be left unnamed. How's that? Okay, I like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, he has proposed a bill in the state of Oklahoma uh, called Students' Religious Belief Protection Act, and this law, if it is passed and signed by the governor allows parents to sue local school systems and teachers if they teach something against the religious belief of the student. Hmm. Now, they don't well, define what that is. I was going to say, and what religion <laughs> is that? What religion well, it could be any that? religion. Okay. But, uh, but so, so, I mean, why, why would you want to be a public teacher and have to teach? Because... What if you teach the theory of evolution and you have a creationist in your, uh, which I'm, we live in Oklahoma. There's a lot of creationists. You can't throw a rock without hitting one. Yeah. And the sad thing is, Autumn, and you and I, you know, and we need to say this to be clear about this. It's not the kids. It's the it's, parents. I was the product of creationist and found, you know, found my way out. Right. And and so you're putting these teachers and students in horrible positions. You're making students basically be, uh, you know, spies within their own, own local schools to report back to their parents who are going to report back to their pastors who are then going to report back to their legislator so that a, a lawsuit can be filed. Mm -hmm. um, this is unbiblical. It goes against the teachings of Jesus. And it's also un-American. I was going to say, this, yeah. It's not even well-written. It doesn't make sense. It's so vague. Like trigonometry is against my personal religion just because all those letters and cosines <laughs> are just offensive. <laughs> they are. That's exactly right. So, I mean, it's it just, we have, we, we have woken up after four years of the Trump administration in a bizarro universe. And this is just crazy stuff. And, but here's the, here's, here's where it gets scary, Autumn, is that as crazy as you and I think these laws are, as asinine and foolish and moronic as these laws are, we have to recognize that the, those who are proposing them believe in them mm -hmm. and they want them enacted. And right now, in many states like the state of Oklahoma and others across the country, and if we're not careful, on a federal level, laws like this could be passed and enacted and upheld by state Supreme Courts and a federal Supreme Court. And that is terrifying. We must never forget that democracy is always at a fragile state and can fall at any time. And so that's why we need good people living out good faith, standing up, speaking out. And, and going to law school, just saying that you still <laughs> use a great employer. And if you want to know how to take the LSAT, I'm your girl. I can help you. <laughs> uh, go to law school, but also stay engaged. Mm -hmm. I know, I know how maddening it can be to try to engage in constructive conversation with people like this senator and those who support laws like this. But if we do not stay engaged, if we do not stay alert, then we are going to lose this battle. We have history on our side. I believe that we are following the teachings of Jesus and that the arc of history bends in the direction that we advocate for. But the only way that that can happen is if good people stay engaged. Mm -hmm. That means staying involved in your local school systems, voting in local elections, state elections, and federal elections. And then also for those who feel able and led to do so, run for school board, city council, state government. And if you want to dip your toe into the water, run for representative or senator. We need good people running this country. And right now, there are people in very powerful places that have evil in their eyes, as my African eye, or my African friends used to say. And we've got to be careful with the direction we're headed. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is crazy stuff, but it's also really scary stuff.
It is. And I mean, like our, like our sweet public te- public school teachers need one more thing to be worrying about. I mean, we know they went into teaching for the amazing money that they make and the high esteem that they get. But I mean, we're just, yeah. it's like shooting fish in a barrel to use an Oklahoma euphemism. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and there's another, another story in the news this week that just kind of reiterates this. Uh, the Republican National Committee, uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, censored uh, uh, Representative Cheney and um, the representative from Illinois, uh, Kinzinger, and uh, before serving on the January 6th uh, committee that's, that's investigating the insurrection uh, last year. And not only did they censure them, but they also uh, passed a resolution calling January 6th the rhetoric and the actions of January 6th. We've all seen the footage. We've seen uh, the Metro Police beaten. We've seen gallows, literal gallows. The calling for the hanging of the Vice President of the United States. Uh We saw it. We all saw it. And here's what they called it. Legitimate political discourse. The audience can't see me shaking my head and rolling my eyes. I realized that I need to narrate it a little better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me just tell you, it was a big eye roll. It was a big head shake. (laughs) Well, it was, and it's, I don't know. I've, I'm, you know, I'm knocking on 40, so I haven't been here a whole long time. But to me, when you start using that sort of euphemistic language around such a serious situation, it makes me think that you're preparing for more. Yeah. And Adam Kinsinger, Kinsinger, uh, who was censored, uh, who is now resigning or who's not running for reelection, who's a Republican. And uh, I would say the congressman and I would disagree on some issues, but he's certainly somebody I wouldn't hesitate in a moment to sit down with and talk about the important critical issues of our day because he seems like somebody that you can talk with and have an ideological difference with, but try to find common ground and solutions to to our country's ills. But what we're seeing out of the mainstream of the Republican Party is terrifying. Mm -hmm. But what Kinsinger said in an interview in response to this resolution that the uh, RNC passed was that he, he is, and he is a combat veteran that he is frightened we're heading towards a civil war. Yeah. And when a sitting congressman who is a veteran says that, it should be eye-opening to every American. And I do think this latest debacle by the Republican Party has opened the eyes of some, because even Mitch McConnell, the House uh, or the uh, Senate minority leader, spoke out against that resolution saying it was it was ridiculous Mm -hmm. so i think i think i hope that some of them see where their party is headed and that they can steer the ship back to where it was because as we have always said on good faith weekly we need a two-party system in this country for checks and balances but we do not need crazy leading one of them (laughs) or either one of them uh, i should say no, we don't. And I don't know. I just am picturing that scene in Forrest Gump where he's a little boy and he gets on the school bus and everyone's like, you can't sit here. You can't sit here. And I, I will say that there have been times in my life when that was sort of my attitude toward the other aisle, the side of the aisle. Here's me. I'm going to be Gen A for a minute and say to anyone um, in the Republican Party, who is willing to have civil discourse about any of this and is willing to stand on the right side of history with us, that you can absolutely sit with me. There you heard it, folks, right here <laughs> at Good Faith Weekly. Autumn is dusting the seat off next to her, and you can That's sit right. beside her on the bus. I set my jacket down so that sunny leather seat won't even scorch your legs. <laughs> uh, well, Autumn, I have missed this. Uh, yes. It's been great to be on the road. I'm actually 
today as we record this in the Black Mountains of North Carolina, outside of Asheville, at uh, Montreat, North Carolina, to be exact, with a group of wonderful ministers, children's ministers, youth ministers, and college ministers. Whew, and, other than public school teachers, those are folks who really go into a line of business for the money and the respect. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, I've got so much admiration for all of our clergy, and I've spoke so highly of what uh, our senior pastors have gone through the last two years. But this week, I have heard some stories that will make your, tur- your toes curl. Um, I cannot imagine what it was like to be a children's minister, youth minister, college minister during this pandemic, during an insurrection, a political or a presidential election, a social uprising. with social Public COVID. health nightmare. I mean, all of it. Um, I am going to be... Uh, submitting all of their names this week for sainthood. I don't uh-huh. know if Baptists have such a thing, but <laughs> I'm going to be submitting all of their names because they're just an incredible group of of ministers. And and we're going to be telling their story next week. We've been taking some interviews and video this week of, of their gathering here uh, at Montreat. And it's been really a really good week. And I've really enjoyed my time with them. So, well, speaking of good times, Autumn, you and I sat down with one of my heroes this week, Dr. Amy Butler, who is the interim senior minister at National City Christian Church in Washington, D.C., as well as the executive director of Invested Faith. Dr. Butler has been a strong voice and advocate for a social gospel and inclusive gospel throughout her career. Again, she's one of my heroes. I respect her so much. And she has launched this new ministry in the last two years called Invested Faith. She is a futurist. She looks at the future of the church and the direction of the church. And this ministry uh, is really innovative and really creative from the standpoint that is it is allowing churches an opportunity to die with dignity, but allow their passion for the gospel to continue through a new alliteration of the gospel. And so it's a beautiful ministry, and Amy shares it and and talks about it in a, a very unique way. And so it's been a it's a great interview. So I don't know about you, uh, Autumn, but uh, I, I've got a big crush on Amy Butler, so I, I can't wait to share the interview with everybody. Same, and I think she'd be all right with that. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned. Uh, our interview with Amy Butler is up next. I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and find us online at goodfaithmedia.com. Org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from our nation's capital. Reverend Dr. Amy Butler believes deeply that courageous communities of people who live with tenacious love can change the world. Much of her career has been spent helping build communities of radical witness in the institutional church. She currently leads National City Christian Church as intentional interim senior minister. Before that, Amy served for five years as the seventh senior minister, and first woman at the helm of the Riverside Church in the city of New York. She holds degrees from Baylor University, the International Baptist Theological Seminary, and Wesley Theological Seminary. She served in churches in New Orleans as well as Washington, D.C., where she served as senior minister at Calvary Baptist Church in our nation's capital and was very important ministry uh, in her career. More recently, Reverend Butler launched Invested Faith, a nonprofit seeking to provide small grants to faith-rooted entrepreneurs. Distinguished as Invested Faith Fellows, these social innovators work to create communities, do justice, and address systemic problems while building projects with sustainable financial models. Fellows receive a $5,000 unrestricted grant and an invitation to tell their story through the Invested Faith community and website. Sounds like you got a lot going on, but uh, Reverend Butler, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to see you. Well, Amy, let's just go ahead and jump right into it. I mean, this is so exciting, this new nonprofit that you've launched uh, in the last year, Invested Faith. So tell us a little bit about what Invested Faith is doing and why you decided to start it. 
Oh, you're going to be sorry you asked me this because I, <laughs> I could talk forever about this. And I'm so excited. <laughs> so Invest in Faith started actually at the about the end of 2019, just when COVID was rolling in. I, you know, like many pastors have been thinking for some time about the decline of the institution, the institutional church and other institutions related to you know, I can speak from the perspective of Christian faith in America. And what does that mean? You know, from a pastor's perspective, I'm thinking a lot about theology. Like, are we teaching a theology of abundance that allows us mm -hmm. to stay open to what God is creating? Or are we just like hanging on to the past with what Brian McLaren calls um, an orthodoxy of nostalgia that is going <laughs> to take us down, <laughs> us and our, our institutions? Right. Um, so what really spurred me on was an article I read in 2019 in The Guardian that said that religious institutions in the United States hold more assets than Microsoft, Apple, and Google combined. Oh, my word. That's wow. Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And having been the pastor of historic congregations struggling to keep the lights on, I know uh, from experience how much our institutions are becoming sort of um, targets for developers that um, can see an easy catch and, you know, sort of victims of this theology of scarcity. You know, oh my gosh, we don't have enough, we don't have enough, we don't have enough, we don't have enough. We have trillions and trillions <laughs> and trillions of dollars of assets. Right. Yeah. So I, you know, two things came to mind. First, um, we are going to lose those assets if we don't do something about that. Mm -hmm. And second, um, we we're we have people and institutions that are dying with a theology of scarcity that does not reflect um what God is doing in the world, you know. God's been here long before us. God will be here long after us. You know, God's work in the world doesn't depend on the fact of whether our institutions have a new roof or not. So until we get our mind around that, we're in for trouble. So I started this, I, I started this idea. I took away a group of friends for um, a weekend where we just like brainstormed the idea. And um, I started phase one with a small grant and like a few people who were like, oh, Amy's up to something crazy. <laughs> and we sort of built the infrastructure and clarified the idea of Invested Faith. This past year in 2021, we've started doing what Invested Faith will do in the long term, which is to model this idea of Jesus who threw out seeds everywhere just to see where God's work, good work would come up in the world. This has been done in Great Britain, and I actually went to Great Britain and talked to the folks who did this 25 years ago. And I truly believe that if we live with our hands and hearts open, we we just won't even we we just won't even believe where God is going to pop up in this world. So I'm now beginning phase three, which is actually the the point of invested faith, which is to invite institutions at the end of their life cycles to put their assets in a fund uh, that will be built to perpetuate this kind of theology of abundance. So say you're a small church of 10 people and you know, you're just hanging on till the end. Um, Invested faith is an option for you to say, you know, to honor the work we have done here and to send our witness forward, our assets will be now placed in this fund and will go on to plant and source the work of God in the world. Wow. I mean, it's so exciting. I remember you and I having several conversations about invested faith, and I was so excited about this venture and what it could possibly do. Now, you mentioned a very controversial figure in your remarks, and that is this guy by the name of Jesus. That, uh, you know, that guy, that guy, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I can remember in my pastoral ministry a long time ago, uh, I, pre I preached a sermon. It was a summer s uh, sermon series about board games, and we were just having some fun with it. And one of the board games that I used as the backdrop of the sermon for that Sunday and the theme for that Sunday was Monopoly. And what would Jesus' Monopoly board actually look like? Because the dude owned nothing. 
I mean, not even a monocle, right? <laughs> yeah, no, didn't own anything. And he changed the world and mm -hmm. revolutionized religion and faith as, as we all know it and still does today. Um, this idea of liquidating our assets, because as the congregations all across the country, and this is happening, uh, it's happened previously in Great Britain and across Europe, and now uh, it's happening here in North America. This idea of liqu liquidating hard assets to invest into the future of the church. Have you seen that expedited during the pandemic, people starting to ask those questions? Or do you feel like there's still some congregations out there, majority of congregations that are holding on with white knuckles, not wanting to let go, uh, and not recognizing the reality that is before them, that we've got to figure out a, a better way to do church and to practice our faith in this world. Yeah, I mean, it's it's largely regional, right? So um, what's happening up north is happening more quickly than what's happening down south, just because of social structures. Um, but it is happening. And I swear it in plan COVID, but COVID has actually um, sort of moved this conversation to the forefront of a lot of folks who were putting it off as long as they could. Um, I have been soundly criticized by many of my colleagues um, in this field of work because there is a large group of people who are working hard to help churches reimagine their witness, which is a wonderful, wonderful kind of work. You know, like we're um, opening a grocery store, we're starting a coffee bar, whatever it is that uh, churches can do. Invested Faith is directly serving those churches and institutions that cannot do that. Yeah. And there are many, 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 as you say, only advanced now by COVID. I've been um, not so fondly named in some circles, the death doula. Um, you know, yeah. just to, to, to say, you know, like, let's talk about what's really happening. And I always think like, you know, it is the central story of our faith, death and resurrection. Right. So we don't have to be afraid of, of death. You know, God's got this, you know, if we just live with our hands and hearts open, just to see where God is going to show up, mm -hmm. um, that's much more exciting than having church council meetings about fixing the roof. <laughs> yeah, well, that sort of that sort of makes me think if we took the medical field and we had physical therapists who are mad at hospice workers because they help someone go, you know, with respect into death in a safe place where they have peace. Like, there's a need for both. We can have there's there's this place for both. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we have, because American Christianity is so enmeshed with American culture, we have seen de the death of our institutions as abject failure. Mm -hmm. And I'm just saying that that's not the case. Like, no. that's not the case. And, and I, yeah. I, with this question, I don't want to get you in trouble, Amy, but I think it's an important <laughs> uh, question to ask, not only you, but every church in America needs to be asking this question. And that is, what is our true religion? Is it American Western capitalism, or is it faith in Jesus Christ? Again, somebody who didn't own anything yet changed the world. And I love this idea of revisioning ministry, and I take my hat off to all these churches that are being creative and doing that. But my question is, are we just creating, are we being creative and innovative for the sake of maintaining the status quo? In a lot of cases, yes. I mean, the irony of, the, well, first of all, let's address the issue of me getting in trouble. Mitch, I always get in trouble. <laughs> I, I feel like- We are going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> if yep. anybody who says they're following Jesus doesn't get in trouble regularly, they're probably following someone else. There you go. Um, mm -hmm. it, the gospel is, is truly offensive, and I think the church's mm -hmm. work is to make us uncomfortable. Um, and that, you know, has- not served me well institutionally, but you know, I I gave my life to this work and I'm not going to let it go. Mm -hmm. um, the irony of this for me is that I've spent my career pastoring large historic institutions with uh, endowments. And I think like in the case of National City Christian Church, there is a role for these churches with great um, platforms mm -hmm. and, um, and resources. 
Um, but that's not like the vast majority of Christian institutions in the United States. And, um, you know, hopefully the message of Invested Faith will begin to speak to some of those. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but one of the most exciting things about Invested Faith are some of the fellows that we have funded that people um, don't necessarily think of as traditional church, but, mm. um, you know, Leah Lonsberry in Atlanta, who started a bakery called Just Bakery that only employs new Americans. You know, to me, that's doing the work. Wow, of that's the amazing. Um, there's Lizzie Case in Los Angeles that started a company that makes uh, progressive Christian t-shirts because she was really tired of all the t-shirts said like Jesus is the reason for the season, you know, and so she is um, <laughs> working in partnership with this um, amazing group of women in the Philippines who have created this network of um, income and small businesses that are sustaining families and villages in, in the Philippines and you can now buy a t-shirt that says Black Lives are Sacred. Awesome. You know, things like that, yeah. that, that yeah. I think are church in ways we yeah. never thought. And so yeah. that's, that's what it's exciting to me, uh, Amy. And I'm going to ask you to put your kind of futurist hat on right now because everybody has realized, and this is pre-pandemic, and you mentioned, um, uh, you mentioned, um, oh, what's his name? You just mentioned his name. Uh, Jesus? New kind of Christian. Uh, uh, McLaren. McLaren. McLaren <laughs> and you know, Phyllis Tickle, who we lost way too early, um, have been talking about this incredible shift within Christianity and the church. And so putting on your futurist hat, what do you think the church is going to look like in the next you know, decade or, or two? Because the reality is the church is dying in North America. We are declining at a rapid speed. The emerging generations don't want to have anything to do with the institutional church. So what is church going to look like over the next few decades? Well, I always say that I do not think that church is going anywhere for two reasons. The first is that it's something fundamental about us being human that we have to find a place to ask hard questions about our lives. Like, what does my life mean? You know, um, what what is my purpose in life? And, you know, I, I myself have three millennials. They are 24, 25, and 28. And you... You cannot tell me that they are not asking these questions. Right. Um, my atheist oldest calls me every Saturday to argue with me about my sermon. So <laughs> I, so love I that. know <laughs> that there are people who are, every human is looking for a place like that. And every human is looking for community. Like we yeah. need each other in order to live this life. So in the 20th century of America, that has looked like going to church and sitting in pews and being on committees and doing things like that. We are clear, Mitch, you just said it. It's not, it's not what the church is going to look like moving forward. And um, I think what scares us so much is that we don't know what the church is going to look like. Yeah. Um, and um, that makes us feel uncertain and filled with fear. And when we're filled with fear, we begin to clamp down and we adopt a theology of scarcity. Yeah. And the sad thing for me about that is it is cutting us off from the work of people like Leah Lonsberry, you know, where God is showing up and things are growing and the church is being the church in the world. And so I think a lot of this hinges on those of us who are resident theologians in congregations. Like, what are we teaching our people? Are we taking a risk to teach this theology of abundance? Um, and then part of it practically, and this is just the truth, is going to come down to how much are we hurting and how desperate are we? Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Well, I'm really super excited about Invested Faith. Um, how can our listeners get involved uh, if they're sitting in a church uh, with all these assets and thinking, you know what, this sounds like a program that we can uh, buy into to invest and make certain our witness continues doing good work throughout the future. How can they, how can they contact you? 
Um, well, the short version of this is investofaith.org is our website. Um, just go ahead and find me there and shoot me an email. But there are three real three areas of folks who I really would like to talk to. The first are individuals with resources who really have a vision for what the future of the church can be. We need to build this fund now so it's throwing off income that allows us to continue giving out these grants. So if you have a lot of money and you're really interested in what the future of the church is, please give me a call. The second is churches that are still going, like the churches I've been passing with foundations and other resources, thinking about how they show up in the world. You can be a matching grantor for Invested Faith. We just did that um, with a foundation here in town. You know, we give $5,000 to someone who's doing this good work. If your foundation wants to, to grant, go ahead. Let's do this together. You give us a small amount of money to keep our work going, and then we maximize the grant that's going to those folks. The third is, you know, if you are part of an institution, you're leading an institution that is looking at the end of its life and you need help thinking about how a future that is hopeful can be part of this experience for your people, um, I can help you. We can help you um, be a place where you are honoring your past and sending your witness forward. And um, I'd be delighted to help any leader or leaders work through that. That's great. Well, Amy, we're going to take a break right now, uh, but when we come back, uh, we're going to ask you a little bit about your some of these causes that you have been championing for several, several years in your career, breaking down the patriarchy, LGBTQ inclusion and equality, uh, because you have been one of my heroes uh, for, for several years now, and I try to aspire to be more like Amy Butler. So when we come back from the break, uh, we want to ask you about that. Wow. Okay. Thanks. I'm Reverend Kendall Ray Rothis, and my latest book is just out. Thy Queendom Come, Breaking Free from the Patriarchy to Save Your Soul. Thy Queendom Come is a feminist reimagining of the kingdom of God. Hierarchy is replaced with a reign of love. Women's voices and stories are valued. Reverence for the divine feminine reemerges from the ashes of its martyrdom. Order your copy of Thy Queendom Come, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this uh, episode, we are rejoined by, uh, or with uh, Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, who is the Senior Minister at National City Church, uh, Christian Church in Washington, D.C. And we've been talking about her new ministry, Invested Faith. Well, Amy, we've got some other questions that we want to ask you, and I know uh, Autumn is chomping at the bit to ask you this one, so Autumn, take it away. Yes, so as a mom who's raising both two boys and two girls, um, it's important to me that I'm raising them in a congregation where women have a voice. And throughout your ministry, you've been a champion on breaking down the patriarchal stronghold and male dominance in the church. We've made lots of significant strides. I'm you know, talking to you here in February, which is Baptist Women in Ministry Month. We had a, um, a female minister in my pulpit yesterday, um, but there is still a lot of work that we need to do. What can our listeners do to help break the patriarchy and advocate for egalitarian leadership? Mm, I love this question. You know, this has been my, my whole life and I was struggling with this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm, this year is my 25th anniversary of my ordination. Wow. So like congratulations back to, you know, 30 years ago when I was, you know, after growing up in an evangelical childhood, never, never saw a woman in the pulpit and, and have been the first woman in every pulpit um, that I've been in, including this one at national city. Um, there, there still is a lot, a lot of progress to make, uh, as you say, both within the church and without, which you would know too as a, a, a professional woman as well. Um, I think it's so critical for our kids to see women in these leadership roles. And so what your church is doing, what churches around the country for Baptist Women in Ministry Month are doing is so critically important. I remember when my daughter was um, eight, she uh, saw... Uh, uh, met a colleague of mine who was a man and she was just stunned that men could be pastors too. I mean, <laughs> let's create that kind of reality yes. uh, for our little girls because, um, you know, the work of God in this world 
is is too big and too complicated to be limited to um, half the human population. I mean, let's again, let's let's look at life with a theology of abundance and see where God is going to lead us. I will say too, looking back on my career, there have been some white male pastors. There's a handful of them that I could name who um, intentionally committed to stepping out of the way, inviting me to be in their pulpits, intentionally building staffs that reflected a diversity that wasn't there before, taking risks in their own churches because they knew they had privilege and power. So if you're at the other end of this and you're a white man and you have privilege and you're hearing me say this, that work is not done. Keep at it, please, because the people with privilege are the ones clearing the way for the rest of us. You know, Emmy, you're talking about the surprise of uh, men being pastors. I can't wait till we get to the point where a little girl looks at the Supreme Court and says, you mean a man can be a Supreme Court justice? Uh, yes. I'm all about RGB when she said that. <laughs> right. uh, well, so another significant group of folks that you've been advocating for during your ministry is the LGBTQ plus community. And again, we've made some strides, but we still have a lot of work to do. Um, do you have some words for clergy and lay leaders um, who want to advocate for inclusion and equality, both in their congregations and just in their worlds, really? Mm. Yeah, for me, this really started to come to reality in 2005. I hadn't had much experience with the LGBTQ community before then, but I had person after person in my office, you know, talking about how they learned from the church God hated them. Mm. They were getting ready to commit suicide. and um, I just thought we we just can't have that, you know. So I started working with Clergy United for Marriage Equality here in Washington, DC, and we changed the laws here in DC and started Calvary went through the process of becoming open and affirming and hosted several events where we showed documentaries and people from churches around the city came um to view them. Um, I, you know, one of our new Invested Faith fellows is an actor and filmmaker from L.A. who's doing a documentary now about being gay in the black church, which is an, wow. a whole new topic that has yep. not yet been addressed. And so I think empowering people like that who are telling their stories and who are living in faithful ways um, in this new reality is supremely critical. I think putting people in leadership and up front that reflect some of these different identities is really, really, really important. And finally, and I've seen this and I'll call him out and he'll be embarrassed for me to do that, but I've I have walked with George Mason through his process of helping Wilshire come to a point where they're open and affirming and he paid a tremendous price. And um the people with privilege and comfort are going to have to start doing that uh, until this changes. And yeah. I don't want to hear any more complaints because this is the gospel <laughs> of Jesus and we've got to get out there and take the risk to do it. And um, so I'm just going to say that as a hard word. Well said. Well, I mean, not only have you been a champion of egalitarian leadership within the church and outside the church and LGBTQ plus inclusion and equality, but I've seen you on the border fighting for migrants uh, coming up from Central America. I've seen you in marches for Black Lives Matter. So again, I'm going to ask you to put your futurist hat on. What are some big issues, and maybe it's just one, but what is the big issue that the church is ignoring right now or needs to pay more attention to during these stressful days? Oh, geez. You know, I think the um, the cultural makeup of our country is changing so rapidly that if we do not start building communities that reflect that kind of diversity, we are going to be adding to the problem of pitting ourselves against each other. And that's sort of like a, a big issue I see coming down the pike. Um, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and I found that people who do not live in uh, the district don't often feel the urgency around our government that I do. But I can see in the next 10 to 15 years that Christians will be having a 
an ideological choice about whether they support the actions of our government or they follow the mandates of our faith. And mm -hmm. Americans, we can't even imagine that that would be part of our reality. But I don't, I don't want to be like, you know, saying things that are really scary, but I, I think that that is a reality that um, is probably likely ahead of us. And so unless we are um, outfitting each other and the generations behind us to understand sort of the scrappy, edgy, progressive expression of Jesus's message, we're, we're lost. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, January 6th, I think, was a test to see what could happen in the future. Um, yeah. And and then the Republican Party just last week basically said that that was acceptable political discourse, uh, horrifying even some Republicans uh, when they heard that from the Republican National Committee. Um, we've got to come together. Uh, we've got to come right. together and stand against this tyranny, against... Uh, this fundamentalism that is really trying to dominate culture. I believe with all of my heart that it is a vocal minority in this country uh, that is acting uh, from, from their bigotry and from their vitriol and from their hate uh, and their white supremacy. And it's time that good people practicing good faith unite and stand up against it and say enough is enough. I think, ironically, I learned this in church. It's not the people who are agitating on the far end. It's the people in the middle who don't say anything. There you go. Yes. 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 And, you know, one of the qualities of my experience in as a person of faith has been that I usually end up in the weirdest, most life-changing situations by pure accident. This happened to me on, on January 6th. I was I had this brainstorm on Christmas Eve, like, oh my gosh, all of these Black Lives Matter banners are getting burned in our city. We should put these three big ones up in our in our in between our columns. So I called the company that the Smithsonian uses to make these banners and I had a friend design them and they're like, you know, I'm sorry we can't. We can't get them done for January 1st. So the earliest we can install them is 7.30 a.m. January 6th. I was really mad about it, but whatever, right. you know. So we go down there 7.30. We're six blocks from the White House. There are four hotels around our, our church. And we're up there putting up these Black Lives Matter banners. And all these people are streaming by with their, you know, Trump flags and stuff like that. And um, a man stopped me and he said, you know, I'm from Oklahoma and I'm just here because you know, the election got stolen. Do you think that I don't like black people? And we had like the most interesting conversation about how far apart we are in this country from understanding each other. And I know that man did not intend to do violence on the Capitol, but what happened? That's what happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. That is so powerful. Well, Amy Butler, Thank you so much for joining us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Amy is Executive Director of Invested Faith and Senior Minister at National City Christian Church. But Amy, before we let you go, we've got one last question that Autumn asked all of our guests. So I'm going to turn it over to Autumn and uh, let her have it, Autumn. <laughs> of course. Um, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and the, the good trouble that you seem to stay in, what is your more to tell? Uh, there are so many things that have more to tell, but you know, the passion in my heart right now is for institutions that are dying. Um, I long deeply for them to know there is more of the story to tell and that the decline that they're facing does not mean that they're at the end. And um, my wish and hope for the church is that we would just grab on to that story and tell it with all we're worth. That. Well, Dr. Butler, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a joy to visit with you and talk with you. I always learn something when I sit down with you. So thank you for your time. And we really appreciate you being a friend of Good Faith Media. Thank you. To our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in once again to Good Faith Weekly. And Autumn and I will be back next week with another guest. Until then, keep living good faith. <laughs>